Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, also former Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. And the American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. Well, I'm pretty excited about this show today, everyone, because I get to reunite with some of my favorite folks from NOAA in the Great Lakes, where we're going to discuss under ice observations and how ecological and oil spill monitoring are important tools for the Great Lakes blue economy. Now, in our November episode, y'all might remember we covered a more warmer season topic of surfing science and the blue economy. And I thought, you know, now that we're in the holiday season, I'd give get a show topic that would sort of make us want to get by the fireplace and, you know, maybe with the tree lit, if that's your tradition. And, uh, and listening to something that, uh, about the season, you know, where we're talking about snow and under ice, ocean, and Great Lakes observations. So before we begin, I'd like our listeners to know that I'm a little misty-eyed today because this is our final show. We have had a great run for about two and a half years, but our sponsors at Coastal News Today are taking a pause on their programming. So we're not sure if we'll ever resume. Uh, but if you've enjoyed this podcast and know of a sponsor who would like to keep it going, please contact me at Ocean ST Leader at gmail.com. All right. Well, to begin with, uh, first up, we have Steve Ruberg, who is a research physical scientist focusing on winter autonomous underwater vehicle technology at NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab. Steve, thanks for reconnecting with me. Good to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation. Right on. We also have Dr. Ashley Elgin. She is a research benthic ecologist also at GLURL, the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab at NOAA. Ashley, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Tim, for having me. And last but not least, we bring back to the show after almost two years during his first appearance, David Ruck, a documentary filmmaker, formerly with NOAA, founder of Great Lakes Outreach Media and producer of the award-winning documentary, The Eerie Situation. Welcome back, David. It's great to be here. These are some of my favorite people. Absolutely. Right on. Well, you really get, you inspired me on this one. And uh, before we get underway and talk about this topic of under ice observing, I want to begin with you, Steve. You're a, a very seasoned research scientist. Uh, you've been with NOAA and previously the Air Force before that and the Navy before that. Uh, about 40 years of professional experience. Um, really awesome to have you here. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do, your job, and um, anything that what, what led you to NOAA and the Great Lakes? Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing about working for NOAA uh, is, at least in the Great Lakes, is that you you get to work on these uh, these amazing uh, freshwater, really what are inland seas, mm. uh, and uh, just the uh, the variety of. Uh, uh, organisms that live in them and the, and the coastline, uh, is just, uh, is, is really beautiful. And to be a part of working for, uh, a laboratory that is focused on understanding, uh, those systems and the role that that plays in the community is just a really, uh, really enjoyable, uh, way to spend your life. Absolutely. Love your attitude, Stephen. I, I remember meeting you up there in Ann Arbor and getting on the, the research ship y'all operate, the Laurentian and uh, just the, the vibe and the feel of the community up there is like nowhere else. And uh, so that's great. I, just, I, I, I get that. And you, you definitely exude that positivity. Uh, Ashley Elgin, how about yourself? Tell us about your background, what you have a degree in, and, and what brought you to NOAA and, and, and GLURL. Yes, well, I, uh, my degrees have all been in the theme of biology, and my graduate work has always been about studying invasive species and aquatic systems. I first did it in a marine environment for my master's degree with Smith College, and then I transitioned back to freshwater when I got my PhD at Notre Dame. And I'm, I'm always studying benthic invasive species, so bottom-dwelling or intertidal invasive species has been a common theme, 
And in the Great Lakes, the winner in that category is the Dreisinid mussels, which are quagga and zebra mussels. Mm. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of those on some of the wrecks that I was diving on uh, when I visited in 2018. What did you do for your master's degree at Smith College? I was studying uh, impacts of the invasive green crab on native snails in the Gulf of Maine. Oh, wow. So you're, you're a cold water scientist. How about that? Yes. <laughs> and what I, I loved about working in Maine is it reminded me of northern Michigan where I grew up. And so I'm like, oh, it's kind of sparse. It's rocky coastlines. There aren't that many stoplights around here. This feels very familiar. <laughs> That's great. Well, wonderful uh, to have you on, Ashley. And then now, David, David, you've come back to our show. But like, let's let our audience know a little bit about your background, what you did at NOAA, what you're doing now. And uh, yeah, and, and any thoughts you have on this? Yeah, I was the cinematographer, video storyteller for NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Tim, I know that's one of your favorite offices at NOAA. Am I wrong? You are absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And um, while I was there, they'd, they'd done video work already. And they kind of, it was one of the department's offices at NOAA where outreach through the various social media and video channels was was a priority. Um, you know, we had leadership, we had a chief of a division in that regard and everything. So it was already pretty important there. But I feel like while I was there, um, we, we really were able to up the up the bar, kind of rebrand a lot of the work that we were doing um, under the banner of Earth is Blue. And, uh, you know, when we had our one year celebration of doing that stuff, we had uh, at the time administrator. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, Kathy Sullivan. Kathy Sullivan, uh, former astronaut and oceanographer, uh, you know, appear on, on, a, on a video we shot. And it, it was such a joy interviewing her. She is just a brilliant person. I think she did like one take, you know, it's sort of like, here's some notes. And, uh, you know, she just like winged it from there and it was, it was perfect. But Noah would send me all over the, all over the sanctuary system. So Thunder Bay, uh, American Samoa, everywhere in between. And it was just a real joy. And so after a few years of doing that, I kind of feel like I hit a ceiling and uh, went off on my own. And now I get to work with more offices at NOAA. And that's, that's something I always really wanted to do was not necessarily be like put in one little place within such a giant administration that's doing so many things. I get that. Yeah. Well, hey, speaking of your, we've talked about communications and media outreach on many episodes of the show. And so even what turned me on to this whole topic of under ice robots taking a peek under the ice of the Great Lakes was this this production you made, David. And let me go back to Steve because the star of the show was you. And so uh, the feature of this was this AUV that you're using. Tell us about that technology, what, what kind of how you learned about it, Steve, and um, and why it's important and what you're, anything else you want to share. Yeah, well, you know, as, as you <clears throat> well know, this th there is a real focus on uncrewed systems. A anything that's <clears throat> either airborne or on the surface or underwater that does not have a person on it, and that can include remotely operated vehicles too. Uh, and and you, you I, I know, had a hand in getting that strategy going in NOAA. So there's been an emphasis on that. And as a result of that emphasis, we responded to a call for proposals from uh, the, uh, the Uncrewed Systems Group in NOAA, and uh, they asked for industry partners. Well, I had had a long relationship with a, uh, a Saab uh, representative, and, and this is the Saab that makes uh, really substantial remotely operated vehicles. Uh, there's a Saab vehicle called the Saab Sabertooth, and it turned out uh, you know, talking to Chris Roper from uh, the Saab rep, I've been talking to him for years, you know, that, that we, in order to operate under ice, what we need uh, are a couple of things. We need a vehicle that can uh, dock in a docking station and recharge and deliver its data on a routine basis. Um, and he and I had been talking for years, as I said, uh, and it turned out the company that, that had the most experience, the industry partner that had the most experience with that vehicle uh, was right here in Michigan, Hibbard Inshore. 
Oh. Uh, in Southeast Michigan. Yeah, they were they are, The reason this was not a stretch for them is that they operate in uh, tunnels that supply, uh, you know, water to power plants and that sort of thing. They, they go all over the world. That's cool. Uh, and they run these vehicles up these big giant pipes. Uh, so operating under ice was not uh, intimidating to them. Wow. Wow. That, let's dive into that a little more. Uh, but very cool. It's interesting how um, the world of autonomous vehicles and systems, that was something, I, as you mentioned, I promoted at NOAA. And I was really pleased to see this production that Dave made featuring you and Ashley because of the fact that, yeah, I, I tried to expand the use of these things at NOAA, knowing they had great applications in the military and industry, as you mentioned. And uh, and then I left. <laughs> and thankfully, things are still underway. No one, no one sort of dropped the ball. So I appreciate you running with it, Steve. Um, Ashley, now you're kind of on the applied end of what what are the, what are these drones uh, collecting? What kind of information, and how are they helping you in your uh, your mission for Glural? Yes, and this is a, it's a wonderful tool to help me better understand kind of the reach of I, what I can learn from my organismal based studies. It's a very different method than anything I used you know, throughout my training, and in a way, I just um, increases the. Um, you know, potential for getting measurements this time of year when we can't get a vessel out. And it also allows for greater spatial coverage of areas um, where the muscles can be very, very patchy. And if we, we need to better characterize that to really understand what their collective impact is going to be in a region. So let's talk about that. Uh, first, I think some people might not know, are, are, why are muscles bad in the Great Lakes? And and then what, how is this machine collecting information about them? Uh, why don't you just start with those? Yes, well, I'll start off to say that the, the way that zebra and quagga mussels have really a large impacts in, in any water body where they're introduced is they're such efficient filter feeders. And by filtering the water and removing phytoplankton, algae, food source from, um, from the water, it's, it's less food and energy that's available for the rest of the food web. And so they, oh, okay. you often will have um, profound changes that happen to a water body after mussels arrive. And they change, mm. like I mentioned, the food conditions. They change the clarity of the water. So water, um, light can penetrate deeper into the water. Um, they also change what the, the bottom substrate and texture is of the bottom and that impacts many species. So what, what in the ecosystem, where, where's their harm being done? Is it, is it fish species having less to feed on or, or what? Yeah, it's at many levels. So I'll start with that is that um, yeah, fish will have, there's less just productivity and energy that's available than to fish. Um, there are some fish, fish species such as whitefish that they have switched their diets and they'll consume the mussels but the mussels are a lower quality food source than what they consumed before. And the whitefish do not thrive when mm. feeding on a mussel diet. I, and I so that has, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it just has impacts for their, um, you know, for their own growth and impacts on their reproduction. I, I heard somewhere, it was on a podcast actually, uh, that the Great Lakes fisheries is something, several billion dollars in economic impact. Do you know that, Ashley? Is that something you're aware of? Yes, and I'm aware um, you know, the, the ex immense value of the Great Lakes fisheries. And to try to pin a dollar value on, on what portion the mussels are causing, I haven't mm. seen, it, it's hard to get a good estimate on that because so many of the, the impacts are indirect and the ecosystem's complicated. And then we have we have many stressors impacting the fisheries right now, but um, certainly it is a highly valuable industry, and the mussels have an impact. Wow! Wow! Um, interesting. Well, so hey, uh, uh, thank you, Ashley, um, David, Rook, uh, and you produced this video that caught my attention, and it, it was cold and icy up there, <laughs> not probably easy filming conditions. Can you just share with the audience a little bit about how you were doing that? And it was really beautifully done. It, it helped tell the audience too where they can see it. And, um, and just some of the aspects of trying to get that shoot and the narration and all the things you sequence together, I, it give people a better understanding of what we're talking about. So the coldest, the, the coldest shoot. So I was there for three phases of this project, I want to say. Yeah. Or, or, or there were three phases and I was there for the first two. 
And then during the really cold part, I was over climbing mountains in Nepal. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And so I sent my good buddy, Matt McIntosh, who's a graphic designer for sanctuaries over there. And, you know, just because just this is going out on the airwaves, you know, I just want to point out that I've been trying to get Matt to visit me again for for a while. And, <laughs> All right. And it only took me leaving the country for him to come to Muskegon to hang out with my friends while I was away. And I just wanted to point that out in case he's listening. All right. Now um, he knows. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm always chatting with Steve and some others over at Glural about, Hey, what are you working on? What's, what's, what's up? Mostly Steve. And, you know, this is, this, you know, this is kind of one of the reasons I wanted to not be so, you know, locked up in one particular office at NOAA is I'm, while Sanctuaries does great work, um, you know, the, the, the real science stuff is happening in other offices. And I'm just really fascinated with technology and science and what, what different applications can potentially reveal or give us that we don't have yet and what that can potentially tell us about the planet. Um, and, uh, and it's always a, a fun challenge to take something that, you know, on its, you know, just looking at it, it's this yellow machine that's sitting in the water and, you know, that may or may not mean something to anyone, but it's got all these gadgets and gizmos that are, you know, potentially going to, in this case, um, you know, allow Ashley to continue doing work in with data that's gathered in winter months and whatever else Steve and company need to need to understand to make these models and predictions that are going to lead in into the, into the coming year. It's this big unknown um, because they're typically left to leaving low wattage uh, simple sensors out there in the winter time that they go pick up in the spring and you know, they're just not, it's not the same as having a vessel out there. It's not the same as a really durable buoy with a science lab attached to it. Um, and so there's always just been this, this gap in this information. And, you know, is this, is this an instrument that's going to be able to help us uh, solve that problem, overcome that hurdle without spending millions and millions of dollars on a ice hardened boat? Um what, what else can this do for us in the Great Lakes? Who else is interested in this technology? Uh, it, it's cool. I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think that at a real basic level, it's your tax dollars at work. There you go. And and you, you know, I don't know that this is necessarily the the scientist day to day is like I'm helping the fishermen, I'm helping the fisher people, or something like that. But I think the fisher people and the recreators and the people who care about the environment need to be aware of these things um, because ultimately information we're gathering from them could inform things that they do and just broaden public awareness. Uh, oh, 100%. Information is power. And so I feel like this is the, this is the cutting edge. This is the tip of the spear in terms of, you know, expanding our understanding. So I love, I just love stories like this and figuring out how to piece it together. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. And, um, and so let's go back to Steve and ask him a little more about this vehicle. What's the, what's the name of it again? And tell us what kind of sensors it has and the features and where is it now? Is it operating right now or when will it be underway next? Well, if I could expand, uh, yeah, I, uh, that it's called the, uh, it's made by a company. You've heard of Saab. They used to make vehicles. Uh, they used to make automobiles, uh, but they're an uh, oceanographic company. Um, the vehicle is, uh, it's a Saab Sabertooth. It's, uh, it's about um, uh, two and a half meters long. It's about a meter and a half wide. Uh, it it looks be, heavy. Yeah. It weighs about 3,600 pounds. Okay. That's um, big. And, and so, what, you know, and, and it can handle about, uh, about a 13 or 14 hour mission. Wow. Uh, good. It doesn't sound like a lot. Uh, but if you have a charging station and then uh, other parts of this that were added on in the end, you start to come up with a way to 
get this big, really capable vehicle under ice. Uh, so this is really significant because, like the the Navy, this is, has real important national security applications, and of course the environmental science that you're doing. Now, is there a charging station on the bed? Of whatever, what lake did you deploy it in? There was during the demonstration effort. Um, and, and, and it's important to add this, we really have only gotten to, you know, let's just say readiness level, uh, seven ish or eight or something like that. But, but, uh, by the end of this, we, we had a, a, you know, a working plan and I do have an estimate from, uh, Hibbert inshore, uh, to operate. Oh, so this. it was just a, you just leased it or did you even pay it a dime? They demonstrated on their own. Oh no, we, we paid for it. That was the, that was the, uh, uh, the initial NOAA grant, and then oh, we okay, you didn't buy it, didn't buy it. No, but we okay. actually collected data. Yeah, and this goes along with that strategy of uh, you know you you develop an industry partner, and to me the the way to to make this work in the long run is to have Hibbert operate it, Hibbert Insure the company, uh, and and then we just basically uh, uh, buy the data from them. That that would be the strategy for a vehicle like this initially. I have to stop here. This is yeah, very cool. Going. Yeah, it's very innovative and a cool concept, Steve. How funny. I I didn't really know the nuts and bolts of how you were doing this. And you're doing exactly what I'm doing with some other companies. For example, um, I work with this drone, uh, surface drone uh, group called XAL that builds a thing that's called the Drix. It's basically a drone boat that does hydrographic mapping. So Noah's doing quite a bit of this now, data as a service, working with contractors. And it's it's really out of the box thinking the military, the Navy is doing, started to do this too. And it's, it's definitely the future in, in terms of merging technology and the government. And, and I like it because when you have to go and sit there and just buy something and then train government employees to use it, that, that can take months to years. Here you were able to get some real data. It, it, it just like very rapidly, it sounds like. Well, go on, go on now. Tell me more about that, how that's going. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, the, we're, we're uh, in years to come, we're planning on uh, deploying a, a several other, a couple of other systems uh, uh, in, in for, for instance, Lake Erie. Uh, this one's still very much at play where uh, we're waiting the outcome of uh, an international joint commission study uh, it's called the Winter Science Work Group. And the thought is that uh, vehicles like this, like the Saab Sabretooth and other ones like uh, Embari's Long Range AUV, which I'm not sure if you know, uh, they now, uh, Saab will actually be making that vehicle as well. <laughs> so, oh, good. Yeah, they transitioned that into, into uh, you know, being made by the Saab co company. Uh, ah, so that'll be great. available. Uh, I'm developing a relationship with uh, Mike Jacuba at Woods Hole to actually do more with that one to get it actually under ice. This one, we operated it in the winter time. Well, meteorological winter, December 8, 9 of 2022, uh, and collected data. We have not gotten that Saab Sabretooth under ice yet. Mike Jacuba at Woods Hole has has operated vehicles under ice. So we're, we're really the strategy, why winter? Uh, as Ashley mentioned before, um, you know, that we, it's, it's about the ecosystem, but then the effect that that ecosystem has on the economy. Uh, as you mentioned, the sport fishery is in the billions, uh, of, of dollars, uh, and there's a commercial fishery as well. Uh, that's a vital part of these communities. You know, there's ecosystems, communities, and economies. Uh, and, and so what, what, what does this vehicle do? We're not currently getting uh, the kind of winter data that we need to understand these really rapid changes that are happening in the ecosystems due to warming. Uh, and so something like this can get us those ecosystem parameters that are, that are, that'll allow us to track, uh, the health of the ecosystem and things like that are, are sort of like the phytoplankton community, the, uh, uh the zooplankton community, some of the instruments that we demonstrated have the ability to, uh, observe zooplankton and fish. So if we do this year in, year out, then we have a monitoring program that will give us insight into the health of these really valuable ecosystems. Are you using acoustics or high def optics? Uh, both. Uh, so for the bottom, yeah, for the bottom stuff, uh, we used a, uh, um, a voice um, um, camera system that 
uh, is a was a laser scanning system, but also has a camera associated with it. Uh, and and we we ran a a multi beam um, R two Sonics multi beam system, uh, and those uh, two systems together gave us some uh, interesting data fairly near shore. We didn't get offshore as we as far offshore as we wanted. But then looking up, we had a, a fisheries acoustic system. A company called ASL Environmental makes this thing uh, called an acoustic zooplankton fish profiler. And uh, oh, yeah. you can, yeah, we, we uh, uh, were able to get a little bit of fish data as well. But uh, those weren't the things to demonstrate. The thing to demonstrate was, can this vehicle operate uh, once everything is kind of shut down, and if you want me to expand on what I mean by shut down for the winter, uh, I can. Uh, so we, we, the docking station, the ability to uh, navigate okay. autonomously uh, are all part of that. I, got, I, I do get that. Um, but let me go to Ashley then and ask about the specifics of that collection mission and, and why. And so I have to ask, okay, so the, the winter is kind of everything sort of gets dark and cold up there and uh but why what's the need for collecting data during the winter and, and the summer why do you need to have a consistent time series what what tell us about the science behind this yes well the the conditions and what happens during winter that follows through and that's going to influence what happens in the spring and the summer because all all the seasons are connected they influence each other and for example, you can have blooms under ice. You know, a lot of us think of really? things being kind of dormant. Yes, uh, dormant during winter. But there are specific communities that are, they live on the underside of ice. Like and what? they're phytoplankton that, it's called a sympagic community. <laughs> and there are certain phytoplankton species that will have blooms and they do quite well um, in the ice, in the water, um, sorry, the light that filters through the ice. And so you can have these, um, these blooms occurring in winter. And if you have a, a large bloom in an area, and, and with that, um, you know, the phytoplankton will, will die and decompose. In some conditions, you could perhaps have more hypoxia then the following year because of that high productivity over winter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, that... And I'm guessing this is this is actually really cool. So you probably heretofore have very little data in the winter. Is that how it, you have a gap? Yes, it, that is definitely a gap. And there are some systems that are uh, better sampled in winter than others. Um, you know, some, for example, if uh, Lake Erie is covered in ice, and if if you have solid ice, you can you can travel out on the ice. You can cut a hole in the ice and get measurements through it. So you, you don't need a vessel in order to get winter offshore measurements in Lake Erie. And there, you can also there has fish. been more work. And you can also fish. You and go. you can contract with people who bring um, anglers out to bring you out to do uh, collect scientific samples, as we we did a few years ago. Really? I have yeah. always wanted to go ice fishing. If you ever go do that, will you invite me? I would love to come up. Oh, well, yeah. I remember when uh, when we met years ago in, in Muskegon, we had talked about ice fishing. And, um, and yeah, we have a lot of great places here. We just need a little more ice. You know, we, we've had, re last year, we barely had enough ice. We really? had a very short ice fishing season, yes. Wow, that's, that's interesting. That's been a challenge. Which makes all of this a moot point, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> David. Yeah. But, um, but to go, you know, the, the main point here is that for, for winter, the conditions are very informative mm. for what's going to happen then in the following seasons. That's interesting. That's fantastic. I love learning new things. And uh, wow. Well, David, let's go back to you, though. Um, and I, this is interesting. Um, so you fit, you're one of your probably most successful pieces is the show, the eerie situation. And since we are talking about the great lakes and even though the topic is ice, uh, it, the ice melts. And then, so I'm curious, uh, the, your show, tell us about it. Was there any, um, winter coverage during that or what did, or, or did you see influences of winter conditions on what you filmed? Just go ahead and open up about that. Uh, no, uh, no. So, most of the data that I'm aware of, at least at the time when we were doing the filming on that, the folks measuring nutrient loading into 
Lake Erie. They begin doing that, I want to say, in March. Okay. And, 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 tell, so and what, what is the show at, about? Yeah. The, the, well, the film is really examining the, you know, why do we have these mega blooms in Western Lake Erie, you know, on a, on a pretty much an annual basis. Um, and what's driving that, what can be done about it? What are people doing about it? And, 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 and so we, we interact with the scientists that are studying it, the folks who live around the lake who have to deal with it. Um, uh, you know, once upon a time in 2014, this, it wasn't a massive bloom year, but it was a toxic bloom year You know, for folks that aren't aware. There's really no known correlation between size of a bloom and toxicity of a bloom. Uh, but, it, you know, not, not, not a significantly, you know, overly large bloom, but a toxic bloom that ended up hovering over the water intake for the city of Toledo. And for three days, people were told to avoid contact with the, with the water. And, uh, it entered the service area and, and, um, you know, it could potentially cause harm to humans. Yeah. I'm curious then. So like a broader picture from Lake Erie and your, your film is very, um, compelling. So, and Ashley mentioned that sometimes winter events can influence what happens in later seasons. And I'm, I'm curious, um, if, uh, the, do you see other blooms like that? I mean, Erie's pretty extreme, but then other Great Lakes have you have you seen that too? Other blooms like that? Well, I would I would say that we're starting to see blooms in places where we didn't necessarily expect them. Like where? Uh, Lake Superior. Hmm, okay. Uh, you know, that's the deepest, coldest. The chemistry is very different, and the two scientists on this call will probably know more about this than I am. I was with uh, on an EPA EPA vessel. A little over a year ago and they were doing two things they were trying to collect larvae from dry seeded mussels in the water column uh, because they're now seeing there's indications that there's populations of mussels in the in lake superior this is you know much to the surprise of a lot of people and at the same time on board that boat that vessel were folks studying the algae blooms that they get around the near the apostle islands i don't know i haven't heard maybe ashley or steve know more about this i don't know that i'm not, I'm not quite aware of what the what they're indicating the drivers of that are i think that it's definitely more in its infancy of being studied than certainly lake erie where there's you know millions of dollars every year being 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 pushed towards understanding lake erie uh, so that's a big deal, I think. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. Well, Steve, you shared with me something about Lake Superior. You're working with a um, a student, I believe, Hayden Henderson at Michigan Tech. Is yeah. What, what can you comment about Lake Superior in that? He's a researcher at Michigan Tech University. Okay, um, sorry about that. No, that's that's fine. Uh, and you know the the Lake Superior situation is um, far smaller uh, than. Uh, far, far smaller than than Western Lake Erie, uh, but the concern is that it is even happening at all. Yeah, right? that that Lake Superior would get warm enough to to support a bloom that prefers warmer water, and the nutrient source there is not nearly the as big as the Maumee River uh, or the or the uh, Saginaw River that fuels the uh, uh, Saginaw Bay bloom. Um, or uh, the Fox River that fuels the Green Bay Bloom on on Lake Mich- off of Lake Michigan. So Saginaw Bay is off of Lake Huron. So three lakes, uh, well, and four if you go to the Canadian side. Uh, there are some things happening in Lake Ontario as well. But it's concerning that there was a bloom at all in Lake Superior. Uh, and yeah, Hayden and others uh, at Michigan Tech are working on that as well. So yeah, we're all concerned about it. Yeah, well, all the more reason to uh, advance the study and, and uh, use application of these autonomous vehicles. Uh, and you you kind of hinted at a, a specific application you were demonstrating, and if you wouldn't mind you going back to that, how you, you, you were using acoustic beacons, I believe, in the docking station. Yeah, I'd love to hear you say a little more about what you were trying to prove. Yeah, okay. Well, so 
when you, you know, if we're on a research vessel uh, or if you're in your car driving around, <laughs> we're depending on GPS, right? You know, if you're going, if I'm driving from here to work uh, and if I, for some reason, didn't know the way, you know, I, I pull up my map and my map tells me where to go. And, and that's because it's always, always has my position dialed in very accurately to, you know, to take me there. Right. Um, and unless, the same is true. Yeah. On, let's say that again. No, go ahead. Uh, unless uh, you're under ice. Yeah. So GPS won't penetrate water uh, and certainly won't penetrate ice. And so you have to do other things to, to get uh, uh, to keep your accurate navigation. And, and one of those is a, uh, and it's called a, the general term is inertial navigation system. And, you know, these have been operated on aircraft, uh, as you know, uh, for a long time. And we had them when I was, uh, you know, uh, working for, uh, uh, for the Navy, the Navy and so on. And, yeah. So, and, some and Marines so that, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you have this, uh, the, in this particular case, uh, it's, it's a, uh, fiber optic gyro and, while the vehicle's on the surface, you get a really accurate position. And then when you submerge and go under, uh, it has a some very accurate accelerometers and can really track every motion that the vehicle makes and kind of increment that position as you move along. Uh, and it's really incredibly accurate. For instance, we went out several kilometers uh, and, and then it was able to then to find its way back into the uh, all submerged uh, and collecting data and, and come back into the channel uh, and uh, get near the docking station. Uh, and, and within, within a, about a couple of meters, and then once it's near the docking station, then it has uh, a couple of beacons that were on either side of the docking station. And that's the final sort of transit. Once didn't, it, didn't it have beacons when it was out in the, in the lake? Yeah, proper, and that's a, well. that's a way if you wanted to go further out. Yeah, you you update your position with other acoustic beacons where the the position is is really dialed in. You know, you you put them in. So were they, were they doing that, or were they just um, relying on the gyro, or and was or was the was the beacon system in there as like you know to augment or as a backup? We were we were able to do that whole thing just on the gyro. Gyro that was not the intent. Uh, the intent was yes that we would go out and update ourselves with uh, what's called a, a, a sparse positioning system, and uh, uh, and that we were not able to get to work. But that's not one of the critical technologies. Really, the critical technology was navigating out, getting back accurately. Then once you're in proximity to the docking station, you have a couple of beacons on either side of the docking station, and now you're. When you're when you're that close, you're down to a couple of centimeters of, of range accuracy. And since you've got one on either side, you can just basically allow yourself or the vehicle can can uh, pull itself in. There was a lot of work done by Hibbard, but also some uh, really brilliant Saab engineers to, to get that to work. It took uh, took quite a while, many days of sitting there uh, dialing it in. So wow, but wow. in the end, it worked really well. That's terrific. And, and do you are you going to do this again, possibly uh, next year? Um, I, you know, that, that depends on money, as you know, how this, <laughs> how these things go, but that's, this is one of the ones that we're going to put out in front of this, uh, international joint commission group. I've, I've given them the, uh, the final report for this and, uh, it'll be entertained as one of the, uh, potential tools that we can use to get out in the wintertime. Ah, right on. Okay, cool. Let me go with Ashley now. And, uh, so we could sort of narrow down into this project, but, I understand that there's a bigger picture here in terms of GLURL, the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab at NOAA, having a long-term benthic monitoring program, doing annual surveys uh, of Lake Michigan or maybe other lakes. Could you share with the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, GLURL has a very strong presence of research in Lake Michigan. We have a long-term research program that goes back several decades um, what's unique about in Lake Michigan is that we were doing these uh, benthic or bottom surveys of the lake that predated before the mussels came in. And in that way, we were able to see um, they're going back to stations that were done before Glural um, in the 1960s, and they had some benthic data from other studies. And then a former researcher, Tom Nalepa, who was with Glural, he said in the 1980s, 
I'm going to revisit these stations and see how all the bottom dwelling organisms are doing with these, you know, system-wide reductions in phosphorus due to, um, you know, regulation changes. And um, so he, he started up a new data set and compared the 1980s data to the 1960s. But then a few years later, this, uh, this invader shows up in another part of the Great Lakes in, near in Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie. And then it appears just a few years later in Lake Michigan. And this record uh, that we had, the survey that was already established, gave a baseline before the mussels came. And then by doing annual surveys, we have an amazing record of how the population developed from north, south, east to west, and at all depths in the lake. And uh, it taught us a lot about first zebra mussels and where they distribute, how quickly they distribute, and then followed a few years later by quagga mussels, which can be much deeper in much colder water. And they successfully displaced zebra mussels um, in all offshore areas of the lake. Um, many of the, the listeners here, you, if you've seen, uh, you might be more familiar with zebra mussels because that's what's very near shore. That's more likely what's in the in inland lakes. That's what's going to be attached to someone's dock and someone's boat. And those are the more familiar species. But when you get off in deeper waters, out into the deeper waters, that's where quagga mussels dominate. And that's um, you know they can they cover the lakes from shore to shore, and um, even in, in the very very deep areas, they're present. So Ashley, I don't know if you're you know I know this isn't published yet. Am I allowed to am I allowed to talk about uh, near shore and offshore zebra mussel colonies and or, or quagga mussel colonies and your emerging theory on them? Can I ask you about that? Yes, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, you and I talked in your lab, and you said that you had indications that if we if we dealt with the near shore mussels we're going to see a reduction in the offshore mussels because it didn't look like the offshore mussels were as reproductively active, if that's a term, as the nearshore mussels. And yeah, that, that's how I would describe it. And um, and that's an an idea I've been forming the last few years, looking at because as part of this long term research that I described, you know, we're looking at all levels of the um, of the food web from you know, from phytoplankton, zooplankton, and larval fish, um, also studying the mussels at multiple times through the year. And what I've been consistently seeing is that the um, just indications of reproductive activity are lower in mussels that are from the deep than they are from mussels more near shore and in the shallow areas. And their areas. shells are different and their shells aren't as thick? Or... That's right. Yeah. they uh, Because when you get, um, when you're in more shallow areas, the temperatures are warmer, you have access to more food, and you just have more energy to put towards shell growth, more energy to put towards reproduction. So that's that's huge, Tim, because, you know, if we if we can figure out, if that if that's true, you know, people are trying to figure out how to solve this problem. You know, like instead of, you know, looking at it like, oh, my God, we got to kill these damn things all over the entire lake. Maybe that's not the case. If you if you can focus your effort in a particular depth range, then maybe you're maybe you're maybe you're solving a, a greater problem. Right. And I think uh, an important point here is that for invasive species, if you want to do wide scale removal, you need to identify their vulnerabilities. Much with sea lamprey, we found out well, they have a life cycle where they have they have larvae that are often tributaries for a couple of years before they become adults and get into lakes and attach to fish. And so they by tr- by finding a, a specific uh, toxicant that that to go after the larval sea lamprey and treating tributaries on a regular basis, they got that population under control. And it's an amazing success story for the Great Lakes and and um, invasive species control in general. Ashley's going to be on Time Magazine That's right. and replacing so for- Taylor Swift next year. <laughs> yeah, when you figure this out. <laughs> oh, I oh. hope so. You you should yeah. be. I'll, you got my vote, Ashley. <laughs> yeah. But I have actually the question I want to ask too is, so on the previous episodes, we talked with Dr. Steve Giddings. Uh, you know him well, David, about 
lionfish, invasive species around the Caribbean and even in the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, and he's making, he's helping make a kind of, uh, what would you call it? Artisanal fishery, if you will, through these, these tournaments to capture and kill the, uh, these lionfish is are are is there a potential fishery? Can you eat these mussels? Is, is that a possible solution? I don't recommend it. No, I, so I'll, one of the things about mussels, they're small. And so yeah. they, there isn't much meat there. Um, but what, you know, and, and this is a concern with all mussels is they're, since they filter, they then are taking in what's in the environment. And the, the mussels, you, um, you know, can take on contaminants that are in the sediments and in the water, and they can biomagnify, accumulate and biomagnify those contaminants. And I'll, like I'll mention there's another, um, NOAA has a muscle watch program where they use muscle populations and in marine areas, they use marine mussels. And in the Great Lakes, they use the zebra and quagga mussels as a sampler, samplers for contaminants. And they don't, they measure the sediments and they also measure muscle tissue as an indicator of what contaminants are in the area. So just that alone, I say, yeah, don't eat them. They're better food sources from the Great Lakes than the mussels. Okay, very good tip there. I, I have to ask you this, and even though I'm going to go, I'm going to go get salt salt water on you here. But so I, I do love mussel, uh, ocean mussels like uh, Prince Edward Island or whatever. Do I have to worry about those too? Worry about them as far as contamination goes? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think in those areas, I would just rely on whatever the the local guidelines are because I I think probably more you know, mixing. They, yeah, it's a it's people track it because it's important and it's also an important food source. So I, I'd say just go by the local guidelines. Uh, yeah, that's like the, I live on the Chesapeake Bay. I'm actually looking at the bay right now. And uh, that's the same for like oysters out here. Uh, you, you have to know what months you can have them. And yeah, well, that's a good tip. Okay. Um, interesting. Well, uh, I, I do, I do want to, um, guys, there's a lot of cool things to cover here. I did want to go back to Steve and, and Steve, you had another observing system. You mentioned a, a cable system that you're working with. Can you describe that too? Yeah. Well, you know, the <clears throat> cabled systems are not a new, new idea. <clears throat> the ocean observing initiative has put, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of kilometers of fiber optic cable out off the Pacific Northwest. You know, there's uh, one off the coast of California, the Mars network, the Canadians have the Neptune network. Uh, what, what sensors are on these these networks? Well, what we're what we started out doing is just really getting the fundamental parameters like uh, currents and waves. And if you have those two things, then you then you have something that can uh, validate our wave forecasting models. It can validate our current forecasting models. The current the current model that we developed, for instance, is used by the Coast Guard for search and rescue. And so validating those physical parameters is important, but now moving towards ecosystem observations, we have water quality observations that we make. And, and since we drink the water in the Great Lakes, uh, the, the, you know, the one that we have deployed right now is, de is deployed very close to a water intake. Uh, and, and the water intake managers are using some of that data to make decisions about how to process the drinking water, super important. Uh, but then we also then have another one of those acoustic zooplankton fish profilers deployed out there. And so now we have a way year in, year out to monitor changes in the, the fish and zooplankton that are sort of visiting that particular area. And if we begin to see changes, we can begin to be concerned. We also have a, a system on there called a fluoroprobe that can break uh, the, the phytoplankton community down into sort of large categories like diatoms. In the summertime, we see a lot of microcystis, which is a cyanobacteria, actually, uh, that, uh, that is responsible for the toxic blooms that happen. And so uh, just uh, many different parameters that are allowing us to not just look at the physical part of the system, waves and currents, water temperatures, but also then get some insight into what's happening in the ecosystem. Yeah. I, I, um, I read a little bit about, thank you for that. Uh, also your going back to the, the sob system, it, there's a potential, uh, for oil spill monitoring and assessment. Is that, is that, is that what you're looking towards as well? That's another potential use of the vehicle. And, uh, we have interest from the, uh, 
the Freshwater Spill Center, the Coast Guard's Freshwater Spill Center, which is co-located at our lab uh, in, in uh, this technology. And, uh, you know, they're aware that uh, Hibbert Inshore is able to operate these vehicles. And, and, and we've demonstrated it well enough, we feel like, in the wintertime that it's a, it, a, that could be a tool for them if there is an under ice spill for using a vehicle like this to go out and, and uh, figure out where the oil is. Because it's obviously uh, when it's under ice, you know, you're not able to fly over it. You got to get up underneath and see, to see where it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, David, going to you. This is something you're working on now, right? A production about this, or do you want to share anything about that? Oil spills and ice? Well, working on this piece really introduced me to this concept of working on freshwater oil spills and our understanding of freshwater oil spills, specifically what this new office that's existed for, I think they're they're pretty much they had their first set of RFPs go out earlier this year to gather ideas from industry on how to, how to address some certain issues in dealing with spills in the freshwater environment. Um, you, you know, I'm there filming Steve and folks dealing with this fancy piece of technology. And so I do a lot of work with PBS and thought I was going to do an eight minute segment on, the kinds of technology that this new office was potentially looking at, but it's really become, it's really just evolved into this deep dive into so many different facets of environmental response, namely oil spill response. And the, this new office, the Great Lakes Center of Expertise for Preparedness and Response is still, it's still a central focus, but it's sort of, also looking at what sort of drove its creation. And I'm asking folks this, you know, question, what does it mean to be prepared? The, the, the Coast Guard model is, motto is Semper Paratus, which means always ready. And I'm finding through this process that everybody sort of has a different definition for, for what does it mean to be prepared or what does it mean to always be ready? And and so I've been talking to just the folks at COE, Center of Expertise. I've been talking to the District 9 folks who are really the, the, the you know, tip of the spear for uh, managing response protocols the, in the area of responsibility in the Great Lakes and then down at the sector level. And talked to Senator Peters, who, who got this... Uh, office started, as well as just got back from Hawaii talking to the former commandant. Oh, good. You did talk to Paul. Yeah, I hung out with Paul for two days. He drove us around uh, really? Oahu. Yeah, we went to Sand Island and and, and really trying this is to get... Admiral Paul Zukump, the former commandant of the Coast Guard, and uh, who I connected you with. Yes, that it, it, is, it, is, it is because of you <laughs> that I was able to connect with Paul. So thank you for that. That's great. Yeah, you got a, you went on a drive with him too. We yeah, we met him at his house, and we spent an afternoon or a morning and an afternoon there talking to him, and then not knowing if I'd be able to meet with him again, I I told him like, you know, I'd like to take an evening, think about everything we've talked about, and then meet up with you again. Um, and so he picked us up the next morning. Um, my editor who, you know, typically he just gets my footage and edits it, but I wanted to bring him on this trip so he could kind of touch this project a little bit and I could get another perspective on it. Uh, so I brought my editor, Zach, from El Paso, Texas, out to Hawaii. And so he was running a second camera. And so so Paul took us out to Sand Island, which is like the main Coast Guard station there. And, uh, and, and we got to ask him some follow-up questions. And why is Paul important? Well, he, the conversation he had with the Senator, Senator Gary Peters is what led to the creation of this office. And, um, you know, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what his background was that was informing his perspective on spill preparedness and response generally and spill preparedness and response in the Great Lakes. And, came to learn through 
my conversation with Paul that he was the federal on-scene coordinator for Deepwater Horizon. And so he had 47,000 people under his uh, leadership during, during that entire operation. And so his answers to some of these questions are, are the kinds of things that only someone at that level is going to have that perspective. It's, it was really interesting. Everybody I've talked to who has either served under, under Paul or, uh, you know, worked with him in some type of capacity sees him as like a natural leader. And I think, I I think his, his career demonstrates that. And, uh, my conversation with him, you know, was demonstrating that as well. And I, it's kind of, it's kind of sad that someone who's still that sharp and that, (laughs) that with it, with that much experience is, is retired. And I, and I hope that when we're done with this piece, a lot of the knowledge that he gained through his career, this is, this isn't a film about him, but I think that, you know, for example, like the COE folks would love for him to come up there and visit and, and tell them what they, what he knows about spur response. And this COE is a Coast Guard center and kind of backstory here why, and why I also wanted to bring you on is that that was when I was the acting NOAA administrator, he was the, com- the commandant of the Coast Guard. And we both together had met separately with Senator Peters of Michigan, who expressed the concern that we have with deep water happening in the Gulf. There's, if this happens in the Great Lakes, there's nothing right now in place to be able to respond to it. And, and that still remains the case. And so the work that Steve's doing now is just beginning with these great uh, autonomous systems is going to get us towards there. I think we could go quicker. And that's what your film is hopefully going to um, usher in a sense of urgency. But uh, cool. But, but so, so, so why did it go from an eight minute piece to this larger piece? Yeah, go. That's because that's because the the response folks in the Great Lakes, when you ask them, uh, did anyone talk to you about your your preparedness and your response capacity? Uh, no. <laughs> and and do they feel they're prepared and ready to respond? Wow! Yes. Wow. So I'm I'm also looking. Wait, at that. When's your When's this and come out? This production. You, you you know you know it's it's this is uh this is a journey. And in a lot of ways right now, I'm still, I'm in this phase where it's a lot like swimming in the dark. Or maybe uh, um, trekking in Nepal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, because I have a conversation with somebody, at least to somebody else. Erie situation was a little bit like this, but I had, there were other people like very familiar with that issue who were like, oh, have you thought about this yet? Have you thought about this yet? And, and, and I had some you know, folks to check in with from time to time who were helping me put the pieces together. This is this is very much a, an organic uh, journey. I'll know when I have a story, you know, like I'll know when I have something that when it's all pieced together is going to going to hopefully I want it to be useful for the Coast Guard. I want it to be useful for elected officials who are obviously worried about these issues and wondering if the legislation they've passed is sufficient or if it should be tweaked or modified or expanded. Um, and, and I think that, I think there's some interesting questions about um, mental health and the culture of preparedness and response. Um, and, and I think that uh, I have a contract with the Coast Guard. All that means is they just, they get, they, because they're working with me, they, they get to review it and tell me if anything's factually inaccurate. That's not to say, I'm working for them or something like that, but they're, they're being super helpful and giving me all this access. Um, and, and I think that they feel like, you know, they're not that anything that comes out of this is, is, is just going to be beneficial and add to a good conversation and bring public awareness. So I think the public's going to learn a lot. Well, I hope so. You know, in fact, I'll tell you, I love working with you creative guys. I, I you know, I'm writing a book and, that kind of creative uh, process where one thing leads to another and it's not necessarily linear is, is kind of fun um, if you can handle that kind of thing, but, but cool, cool, David. It's wild, man. I mean, there's been freak out moments where I'm like, what the heck am I doing? 
And, you know, but that's why I have a lot of friends in this industry. They're like, Dave, trust your gut. Like, you know what you're doing. There you go. Well, hey, so uh, you, you got to have folks like that in your corner. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm in your corner too. So let me know if I can help or review anything. But um, you've been very helpful already. <laughs> all right. Hey, well, we're, we're, uh, we're going to kind of wrap up here and I'd love to go into final thoughts. So I want to start with you, if you don't mind, uh, Steve, pardon me, Steve Ruberg, who is a, a research scientist at the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab of NOAA in Ann Arbor. Steve, any final thoughts on this uh, observing systems under the ice and the Great Lakes and supporting the blue economy up there? Well, I think um, <clears throat> an important thing here, as we've talked about, is Dave's uh, David's video uh, and why did we go that direction? You know, we we wanted we wanted this to be very visible to the public, and one way to do that is to have somebody like David who who does dig and dig and dig until. There is a, a story that can be put together to uh, to let the public know what we're doing. And, and as you know, that's a real concern in the scientific world is, uh, you know, we're not the best at communicating. And someone like David uh, is, uh, you know, is very good at turning the, the mysterious things that we're doing, you know, and, and turning that into something uh, that uh, that can be understood better. We're, we're immersed in our worlds. But being immersed in our world, you know, where I think this is going, you know, we there's a lot of really good technology that has been developed. Uh, autonomous systems are are here to stay. Uh, as you know, sail drone, uh, ocean buoyancy gliders are being used for hurricane forecasting. Uh, I, I do believe that uh, 10 years from now, this won't be that big of a deal. There will be it'll as a part of our every winter when we sort of put our boats away that are always going to have problems being out in the winter, even though we sort of alluded that winters are getting warmer and they are, uh, we're still going to face severe winters. It's not just ice cover, it's ice accumulating on boats. And that's why everyone bring most everyone brings their boats in. So these vehicles are going to play a role in helping us understand the changes, but also helping us potentially uh, help the ecosystem adapt to these changes so that we can still, so that our, the folks in our communities can still go out there and catch the fish that they want. Uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the community can, can move on, even though things are changing. Right on Steve R robots for research. Very good. Uh, thanks so yeah. much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, thank you. And uh, Dr. Ashley Elgin, research benthic ecologist, also at Glural. Anything else you want to uh, give to our audience to take away? Uh, a few thoughts. As first, you know, we as a federal research laboratory, we maintain very valuable long-term research data sets. And we are committed to incorporating these new technologies to enhance our monitoring and research programs. And I think in light of uh, changes that are happening in the environment. These decades of research that we have are, are really critical to help us understand what's been happening and what will happen. And then um, finally, in the spirit of the holidays, I have to let people know that right now, quagga mussels are celebrating very favorable conditions oh, in gosh. the Great Lakes. The <laughs> offshore bottom temperatures are warmer than any other time of the year, and they have some food still from the fall turnover. And my field experiments show that they are growing substantially at this time of year. So um, my parting wish is that for everyone to, like a quagga mussel, experience positive growth oh. right now as we embark on 2024. Wow. That is great. wonderful. You're, and I didn't get to share with, with our audience, Leslie, that your great, great, great grandfather was a schooner captain and a lighthouse keeper on Lake Michigan. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. And then I, um, and I knew that since I was a kid, but, um, and that's part of our, you know, our family's very proud. He's a lighthouse keeper on Northern Lake Michigan. But then it was just a few years ago, I discovered that on the other side of my family, um, about my great, great grandfather being a coal passer, because I found his Department of Commerce continuous discharge book in a drawer in my mom's childhood home. Get out of here. And during really? World War II, he was working on freighters in the Great Lakes. Wow. This explains why you're so adept at being sequestered away in a, in a, in a remote laboratory. That's right. Along the no problem with that. <laughs> it's in your DNA. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so for our audience, by the way, NOAA is in the Department of Commerce. So that's a kind of neat little legacy there. 
Uh, wonderful, Ashley. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, and by the way, for you all, uh, I am going to be possibly coming up there as a guest lecturer on one of the Viking cruise ships that started to uh, run through the Great Lakes in the summer. So um, I know I really hope to see you all when I do that. Um, and David Ruck, uh, uh, founder of Great Lakes Media and Outreach, to anything you want to share with everybody? Um, yeah, I you know I I'm not sure who all your listeners are, but you know one of the main reasons I do the work I do is because I want to champion the 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 passions and the work of our civil servants, and they're folks who can't advocate for themselves typically in the way a lot of other organizations can. And a, a huge driving force and motivation behind the work I'm doing beyond my own pure curiosity and the notion that, you know, if people just learn about it, they'll be interested in it is, is really a reminder that this is your tax dollars at work and not to, you know, I, I feel it's important enough to say that in the next year, I think a lot of this stuff is, is, is at risk. And, and, and folks need to be thinking about that. There's a dismantling of the administrative work of government that is dreamed of by certain folks. And if that were to pass, um, I think people would have a rude awakening and suddenly realize all the great things that the government has actually been doing for them. But if we get to that point, that's a irresponsible tragedy and an avoidable one at that. And so, um, you, you know, folks like Steve and Ashley and the, and the many, many people, the million of pe million people like them who work for our government are all making our life a better, a better life. Um, and that's a key role of, of Noah, you know, life, property, health, uh, protection of, of, of property. Science, service, and stewardship, as exactly. we said. And so yeah. just, you know, I just want folks to be aware of that and, and, and to share that with their friends. And hopefully videos like the ones I do are, 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 you know, people can make that association that, oh, yeah, that that's my tax dollars, you know, helping us with that understanding. Put to good work. Awesome, David. Hey, thanks for coming on again. And if I get to do any future shows, it'll be great to have you on again. I'm sure you'll figure something out. I'm sure you'll figure something out. <laughs> I'll do my best. Well, hey, lastly, and definitely not least, least I want to give a giant shout out to my partner in crime, our producer and uh, audio engineer, Tyler Buckingham, who has made every show happen and happen perfectly uh, through many missteps on my part. He's made everything appear to be magic. So, Tyler, thank you, my friend. Looking forward to whatever our next chapter together is. Likewise, Tim, it's been a real honor and a pleasure. Well said, sir. Okay, well, here we are at the final leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast. Thank you, my guests. Thank you, all our listeners, for joining us over the last few years. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, wishing you happy holidays, fair winds, and following seas. Music.